This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Today, we're looking at migrant workers on PEI. A migrant worker is someone who moves to another country or area in order to find employment, in particular seasonal or temporary works. Migrant workers are especially important on PEI, as in 2020, there were 1,725 migrant workers, 865 of whom worked in seafood and 755 in agriculture. They're very important here, as agriculture and seafood are, as listeners will know, two of PEI's primary industries. Migrant workers are a particularly vulnerable segment of the population, and this is by virtue of their temporary status in Canada. Indeed, they have fewer rights, little to no access to settlement services, and in many cases, no protection when it comes to the charging of illegal recruitment fees, wage theft, access to health care, and adequate housing and more. While these may seem surreal, these inhumane conditions do exist here in PEI. While migrant workers are integral to PEI, their experiences tend to be less than acceptable. A 2018 report card evaluating migrant workers' rights in Canada, launched by the Canadian Council for Refugees, gave PEI a letter grade of D when it comes to the legislative protection of migrant workers. The reliance on the Employment Standards Act was seen as inadequate in providing protection to these workers. This has led to the development of the proposed Temporary Foreign Worker Protection Act, legislation currently due to be tabled in the Legislative Assembly in one of the upcoming sittings. More recently, a report titled Safe at Work, Unsafe at Home, COVID-19 and Temporary Foreign Workers in Prince Edward Island was published June 1st, 2021. Now, this was published by a number of different partners and first and foremost included the Cooper Institute from here on PEI. It also included Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, also known as SHRC, Dalhousie University, St. Thomas Universities, Keros, the Filipino-Canadian Community of New Brunswick, and the United Food and Commercial Workers Union Canada. They collaborated to fund, write, and publish this report. And it was part one of three in a series analyzing the experiences of migrant workers during COVID-19 in each of the maritime provinces. Key findings of the report were housing and workplace violations, unscrupulous staffing practices, crowded houses, a health and safety concern, burning the candle at both ends, migrant workers' precarious jobs, under the weather on health, illness, and medical insurance, and finally, we're not in this together, seasonal foreign work during the COVID-19 pandemic. In addition to the key findings, the report outlined a series of policy recommendations to improve the working conditions for migrant workers. This included permanent residency upon arrival in Canada, requiring union representation, ending employer-specific work permits, providing provincial health care cards on arrival, conducting workplace inspections, and ensuring that migrant workers have access to safe, affordable, and dignified housing. Here to speak with us on the experiences of migrant workers on PEI is traveling and beer enthusiast, incredible chef, migrant worker program coordinator with the Cooper Institute, 
fan of all things Mexican, and our close friend, Fallon Mawini. Well, Fallon, welcome to Dialogue. Our first official question for you is, how are you? Well, I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I just feel like I'm in, I've made it. Like this is... <laughs> getting interviewed on a podcast like wow uh, you know nothing nothing in my life the degree nothing like now I'm on the podcast I'm, I'm in I'm in the big leagues so I'm happy how are you doing Sweta? I'm doing very well you know it's a Friday morning and it's very cloudy um, so I'm just looking forward to the weekend at this point wonderful well thank you very much for having me thank you so much for agreeing to guest on the show now, first and foremost, Fallon, before we get into our first really official question, congratulations on, on recently graduating from UPEI. That must be an exciting feeling. Thank you. Actually, I, I graduated in 2019. Um, <laughs> I graduated <laughs> in September 2019. And then, the, of course, the, the convocation stuff in 2020 was like pushed and whatnot. And so I didn't even know that they read my name at graduation, like, last week someone's like oh congratulations i heard your name at graduation i was like what i, <laughs> I okay sure um but thank you i yeah i i was i was gone during like graduation time in 2019 i was in mexico mm. so um i never really got to celebrate that officially so i'm thinking like maybe a little dinner with my family or something just to, to celebrate it so yeah. thank you Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a big accomplishment nonetheless. And as much as we are in COVID and it's not the same as other years, I think the achievement is still there. And I think it's it's definitely worthwhile to celebrate, even if it is from September 2019. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Excuse exactly. to have good food and celebrate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Now, Fallon, you have a really interesting job here on PEI. You work with the Cooper Institute, but you specifically work one-on-one -on -one with temporary foreign workers. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with them? Certainly. Um, so I always tell people that my job is kind of divided into two main parts. So there is that one-on-one -on -one support, um, which needless to say can be really time-consuming um, because you're you're really... Um, getting into to work with people who often are um, having issues, if not in crisis. Um, so that support is pretty intense sometimes. Um, and then I do have another part to my job. Well, I have many parts, but the, the main other part is advocacy work for temporary foreign workers, because what we, we often say is that the work that we do is is so unique. There's there's no one else on PEI that's specifically dedicated to supporting mm. temporary foreign workers, or I would probably prefer the term migrant workers, okay. um, because and I can talk a little bit more about that in a second. But mm. um, so there's no one else specifically dedicated to that work. There's there are people who are um, um, doing it, but but that's our entire mandate. And so then we take that information that we see on the ground with workers, and then we transform it and we take it into advocacy work. So. Um, for us, that's usually provincial and federal advocacy. Mm -hmm. For sure. So those are the two parts. Wow. And that's really important work, you know, considering how present migrant workers are in the agriculture and fishery sectors, especially on PEI. Um, in 2020, there were a total of 1,725 temporary foreign workers on PEI, 865 of whom were in seafood and 755 in agriculture. 
What do you think this says about the role that temporary foreign workers play in these sectors? Um, migrant workers are essential. They, they are truly essential. Um, I have seen that again and again, and it's something that uh, Cooper Institute has been saying for a very long time. Um, and in a way, I, I feel that I'm kind of bandwagoning a little bit on this work. I came into the job in January um, and my colleagues have been working on this work since 2012. So it's been nearly 10 years of, of the work. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute as well. But um, back to the question is that I, I don't see these industries being able to function without those workers. Mm -hmm. um, and I it's something that always strikes me as a little bit ironic, like the, the fact that PEI has these, these industries and sort of is, is very well known across Canada for them being the food island. Um, and yet is um, not, is, is so significantly staffed by folks from other countries. And so I don't think, I don't, I don't think that recognition is there. So I, it's something that I try to, to bring up with people when they ask about my work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really just going off that, Fallon, uh, you know, we know from uh, both the work of Cooper Institute and, and recent data that we'll get into, you know, the long and the short of it is migrant workers are in a very vulnerable position right now on PEI. Um, first and foremost, due to the fact that their employment status in Canada is tied with their employers. Um, from your folks' perspective, what impact does that power imbalance have on the vulnerability of migrant workers here on PEI? Um, great question. And I would say it impacts everything. And I know it's like mm. such a cop-out answer, right? But <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but it truly does when you dig into, and when you think about what does, you know, the average season say for, for a migrant worker look like on Prince Edward Island, you know, they, now they're coming here, they do uh, 14 days of isolation. Um, then as soon as they're done, they're taken in usually transportation by the employer to housing, which is depending on the two streams, which I'll, I'll talk mm -hmm. about in a second. Um, it's either provided by the employer mm -hmm. or likely the employer has had a hand in finding that. Um, we mm -hmm. see that a lot where um, technically people in the, what we do call the temporary foreign worker stream, um, they rent within the community, but often the, the landlord of that um, of that house or that residence um, is connected to the employer. So then yes. there's, okay, there's the living part. Um, yeah. And then, you know, groceries. Okay, well, typically the employer will send um, transportation so that workers can get groceries. Um, and then transportation to work also in on the employer. The employer has control over the flights back. The employer has control over the contracts. So really when you do think about it, it is pretty much everything. Mm. Um, so... I think that it really speaks to how precarious the situation of migrant workers is. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this specifically, the project that I'm currently working on uh, with Cooper is regarding empowering temporary foreign workers. Um, their words, not mine, I would have put empowering migrant workers um, <laughs> in, in COVID-19 or in the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've certainly, um, noticed you know it's always going to be precarious there's always going to be yeah. the fear of 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 being sent home but i think especially now because 
there is a pet, a worldwide pandemic. So, mm-hmm. you know, most of the workers come from a, a very, a, a certain set of countries. They're from Mexico, Guatemala, countries in the Caribbean, China, um, sometimes Thailand and as well, Thailand and Vietnam and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about those countries' economies right now, there really isn't much work there, mm-hmm. um, even less than usual, right? So, um, it's, it's a very precarious position. And even if, even if some of those things that I talked about, you know, the, the housing or, or the job conditions aren't great, workers often will power through it because um, they've got families at home that they need to feed. So mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty tough. Yeah. I mean, you bring up some really interesting points there, like that unique relationship of a migrant worker with their employer in comparison to any other form of contract, you know, in a regular contract, you know, Fallon, you're my first ever official, you know, boss uh, (laughs) slash, you know, supervisor in the kind of professional world. And, you know, you and I had a wonderful relationship and and I teased you quite a bit and I call you the boss and, you know, you didn't really like that. But, you know, we, we had a great relationship. We worked together, but, you know, by no means did you determine, you know, uh, where I was living, you know, how much I was paying for my living costs, how I got to, you know, um, the airport and back, how I got my groceries, um, different things like this, you know, that is a totally different relationship. And and really, like you said, in those specific examples, that power imbalance, then on top of that, you throw in COVID-19 and really looking at this, not with, I would say, kind of the horse blinders on but really looking at okay what's the reality of a worldwide pandemic and kind of what is the status in each of these different countries that migrant workers are coming from we really get into this is a complicated situation and these workers really are put in a position where they have no other choice like you said to power through so tell us a little bit more about your work on the COVID-19 piece because that again adds another level of vulnerability that migrant workers are experiencing? Yeah, certainly. Um, That's a good question, Emma. So the work that we have been doing in terms of uh, supporting workers during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think was summed up very well um, in the report that recently came out. um, That was this week. And so I really have to applaud my colleagues, um, Anne Wheatley and Josie Baker, who have been working, as well as Paola Flores, who um, was in the position that I'm in, the Migrant Worker Program Mm -hmm. Coordinator before me. Um, So they were really, um, they were the faces of Cooper Institute in that report. Um, And it was incredibly eye-opening about, Mm -hmm. specifically about COVID-19 and and the, um, the challenges that workers are facing in the pandemic. And it really... Um, I, I really wasn't involved in the report writing process. They were very careful to make sure that, that they maintained confidentiality with yep, the workers. Sure. Um, and so I, I didn't have, I didn't know much about what was going on with the report, but when it came out and I had the opportunity to read it, um, it really lined up with my experience in the past four months um, working mm-hmm. in supporting workers in COVID-19 mm-hmm. um, in, in the sense of that sanitary measures um, maybe being followed in the workplace. However, at home, um, often, I'm not going to say always, and I think that's important um, because we have seen some excellent, excellent employers and excellent places of um, residence for workers, um, but we've also seen some some subpar ones. And so um, 
certainly lined up with my experience in the visits that I've had, just seeing that um, housing overcrowding, um, housing that really probably wouldn't, or that, that had violation, um, some kind of, some kind of violation in, mm. in the house. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And just speaking to this, um, just to elaborate for our listeners, the report in question that we're talking about, uh, was published this week by the Cooper Institute in partnership with Dalhousie and St. Thomas University. And it looks at the protection of migrant workers during COVID-19. This is part of a wider research project that was funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, looking at migrant workers in the Maritimes. Um, and the report outlined, as Fallon just mentioned, that while sanitary protocols were implemented in the workplace, the living conditions were subpar. Um, in a, just to give an example of that that's mentioned in the report is that out of 64 dwellings inspected by the Department of Health and Wellness that were being occupied by temporary foreign workers and provided by the Department of Agriculture, 32 presented violations. Since temporary foreign workers working in the seafood industry um, are not bound by the same regulations. There's no data available um, to support whether or not their living conditions are better or worse. Mm. One author of the report, who is an associate professor at Dalhousie School of Social Work, Raluca Bijan, stated that the conditions in housing usually arranged either by the employer or the federal government make it basically impossible to respect public health protocols. And what is the point of enforcing COVID-19 protocols at work when workers go back to an overcrowded house? How do you feel this describes migrant workers' experience with COVID-19? Um, it, it really, really lines up with it. And I think that it was, that report was just, it was so well-written and it was so, um, it was so accurate and it, it was a real relief to see some of that information um, to be out in the world and to have people kind of, I, I, I honestly think that one of the things that people often tell me when they realize what my job is, mm -hmm. is, oh, I didn't realize like there were enough workers, enough migrant workers on the island to support a position like mine. And mm -hmm. so I, th I think wow. that, I think that report is, is so important because mm -hmm. it, it, it really is sometimes not always, but it really can be this kind of invisible world happening, you know, here, here in, in, in beautiful Prince Edward Island. And, and there's just this, um, this invisibility, certainly um, that, that the, the particular programs can often um, encourage. Um, and I am so happy that we were able, certainly not happy, those things are happening, but mm. happy that we were able to publish such a fantastic report um, that really highlighted those experiences. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we'll be linking Safe at Work, Unsafe at Home, the title of that report with this podcast, so folks can also take a look at that. It's an extremely comprehensive report. It's around 50 pages, uh, so um, extremely, extremely useful data. Um, and, and some of the recommendations, Fallon, that was mentioned in the report, um, just kind of, you know, looking at, you know, these experiences and, and really some of the atrocities that are happening to migrant workers 
here on PEI, there were some really positive recommendations, and that includes um, including permanent residency upon arrival in Canada, requiring union representation, ending those employer-specific work permits that we've been talking about, providing provincial health cards upon arrival, conducting workplace inspections, and ensuring that migrant workers have access to safe, affordable, and dignified housing. And, you know, from your experience, um, I might be jumping in the gun a little bit, but, <laughs> you know, do you agree with these recommendations um, from what you're seeing as a support staff? 100%. When, absolutely. I, 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 we, we had a meeting uh a couple of days ago with uh, the PEI action team for migrant workers rights, which is a group um, that supports the migrant worker coordinator and um, really for forwards the information and community awareness about migrant workers in Prince Edward Island. Mm -hmm. And we were, I was saying to them that, you know, they have been, they, they have also been part of this, this work for a long time. And so it's not news to them, but particularly um, permanent residency on arrival um, there would just be so many problems that would be prevented. Mm. Um, and just, it, it comes back to a power imbalance, right? That, exactly. that like when you don't have, when your status is precarious, when you're depending on your, the length of your work contract for um, comprehensive health coverage, or you're tied to one employer like that, that for mm. me is, is one of the biggest things because I just can't, I can't imagine being in, a country where you you're working you don't necessarily um sometimes you do but maybe don't speak the language of the country you're tied to an employer um mm -hmm. and, and there's just that freedom of movement right so i think that particularly permanent residency status on arrival would be such a wonderful thing that we could do um, and would really alleviate a lot of the issues that we see on the day-to-day -day with migrant workers um, and certainly there is that movement across Canada. Mm. Um, I'm part, oh, well, Cooper Institute is a part of what we call, uh, what's called the Migrant Rights Network. Um, mm. And that's a group of organizations across Canada that are engaged in similar work. And, you know, each one is a little different, you know, some have a specific focus on, you know, they're helping farm workers because um, there's far more farm workers in the Ontario region, say, um, as opposed to PEI, where we do have this, this large group of, um, of workers who come for seafood processing, mm. uh, but, but realistically focused on the same goals. And that's one of the goals that they have been really pushing for years. Um, and I would, I, I hope that we see that one day. I don't know. I don't know the specifics, but I would love to see that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you bring up like a really good point, which is really looking at how to counter the power imbalance itself which is at the root of all these problems, it would seem. Uh, looking at protecting migrant workers, um, there is currently legislation under development, which is entitled the Proposed Temporary Foreign Worker Protection Act. This looks at improving conditions for these workers on PEI and has several key components, including providing workers with contracts uh, on arrival and information on their employment rights, allowing government to recoup and return to workers any illegal recruitment fees and more. As a stakeholder and, you know, kind of the leading expert in advocacy for migrant workers on PEI, has Cooper Institute been consulted on this legislation? And if so, what has that process been like? Certainly. Um, 
And so, yes, absolutely. We have been, we've been consulted on the legislation. And again, I really want to make sure I'm not stealing other people's thunder. <laughs> I, I was in Mexico uh, up until January of this year when I came back to take this job. And mm. um, so the consultation process started last summer. And again, that, that was all credit to my colleagues, uh, to Ann Wheatley and to Josie Baker, who, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, and to the PEI action team who, who really were there at the very beginning of that process. Um, so they put together a wonderful submission and they submitted that. Mm -hmm. um, and then when the draft came out in, oh gosh, that would have been late January, I was involved a little bit in creating a second submission um, and sort of, we had the opportunity to meet with uh, the people who had put together the draft, um, which was really wonderful. And that's something that I have been very thankful for in this job in Prince Edward Island. I think that the opportunity to be able to meet with the lawmakers, you know, mm. just is such a special thing that we have here in PEI. Whereas I know that my colleagues um, in Ontario, in Quebec, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, mm. and BC, it's just not something that's accessible. So I have certainly been thankful that that the um, the government has taken such a interest in hearing what Cooper Institute has to say as the only organization specifically dedicated to this work. Um, so it is, it's been a, it's been a great process. We've been very happy to be involved. Mm -hmm. And with the proposed legislation, Fallon, do you feel it is adequate to support migrant workers on PEI? You know, for example, out of some of the recommendations from the recent report, uh, providing a provincial health card would, of course, be provincial jurisdiction. You know, was this included in the proposed legislation um, and was it adequate or do you feel like there are some amendments that were missing and should be added? Um, great question. And I, I do want to give credit where credit is due in terms of this is a huge step forward. Like this, this is, is major. And it's something that again, Cooper Institute has been pushing for, for years. So to see the step forward, um, and something that, uh, is particularly important about the Temporary Foreign Worker Protection Act is that it addresses not just employers, but it addresses recruiters. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that's something that people don't even think of. Um, it, but when you think about it, you know, I'm uh, a person from rural China or rural Mexico, um, and here's a person in rural PEI who has this labor need. Um, how do you connect? Like, how, how do people connect there? So there is this really big middle step often of recruiters. Um, and again, not always, sometimes great, sometimes not so great. Um, but that's certainly an area that we have seen again and again, uh, where workers are being exploited, uh, financially exploited, certainly through that middle, that middle process. So I think one of the biggest things for me in this, in this um, draft is seeing that um, that it will address uh, registering recruiters and, and having licensed recruiters for workers who come to the island. So that is a huge step forward. I, aside from that, I, I think I would love to see some work, some movement around the housing piece as well. Mm. So I think this is a good uh, point for me to, to make the distinction between the two programs that we have. Uh, for uh, migrant workers on PEI. So we say migrant workers because that encompasses everyone. Um, and then we have two separate streams. We have the temporary foreign worker stream. 
and we have what they call SOP, Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program. And so SOP is a actually a bilateral agreement between the governments of Canada. And it started with just Mexico. Um, it has mm. since expanded to some Caribbean countries. And so the people who come through SOP, um, it's really... Uh, so, so both governments will work on that together. Um, and it has been, it, it's, it started in the 60s. It, it's quite an old program. Oh, wow. Um, so they have, tend to have more specific federal regulations. Um, so for example, in the SOP program, employers are required to provide housing, which in turn leads to more housing inspections because it is regulated federally. However, with the temporary foreign worker stream, um, it's a, there are some differences. It's certainly not a bilateral agreement. Anyone can come from any country to be a temporary foreign worker. Um, it does tend to be similar countries. Like we will mm. see people from Mexico in both streams. We'll see people from the Caribbean in both streams. Um, however, in the temporary foreign worker stream, that opens it up to um, Filipino workers, to so Chinese workers, mm-hmm. um, other South, South Asian workers. Um, and as I said, people from other places we may not even know about. Mm. Um, so with the temporary foreign worker program, there is no precedent for housing inspections because as I mentioned at the beginning um, of our chat is that they are technically renting from the community. Um, so they could be renting anything if it, you know, any, any house that comes up. However, realistically speaking, we know that, for example, there's some small communities on Prince Edward Island that are having major housing shortages. Um, so it ends up often that their housing is tied to the employer. Um, but there's still no sort of federal, um, prerogative for them to, for those houses to be inspected. So mm-hmm. all of that to say, I would love to see some more movement um, and work around housing for migrant workers. Um, and that's something that we had certainly spoken about in our submission, um, talking about um, regulated yet random uh, housing inspection. Mm-hmm. Um, so to make sure that it is truly random. So that is something certainly that I would like to see more of um, and that Cooper Institute would like to see more of is advocacy around the housing piece specifically for temporary foreign workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I just want to point out there first, Fallon, like you had mentioned, for example, uh, one thing that you folks have advocated for is the um, automatic access to PEI health cards upon arrival. And we saw that, you know, due to understanding of you know, global pandemic, you know, in Ontario, another jurisdictional, um, you know, example, uh, they changed from 90 days to immediately. That would be a big difference, you know, when we think about um, migrant workers who might be here for um, a short period of time, 90 days is a long friggin' time. (laughs) So to to scale that back is really, um, I think, is, is, is understanding of the situation in which um, migrant workers are in. So definitely when it comes to PEI, I hope that's the case as well. And then the other piece you have mentioned too around um, what you're hoping to see is around the housing piece. Now, as you said, only one of the two sectors is regulated under um, the, the housing piece. 
But as we know, um, PEI, as Sweda mentioned before, there's 865 migrant workers in seafood and 755 in agriculture. So essentially, you know, what we can, um, you know, result from that is half of the migrant workers on PEI are not having their housing inspected and really up to par when it comes to not only housing standards, but also COVID-19. Um, and again, like you said, kind of going back to that power imbalance with employers determining housing. So um, some really interesting takeaways there, just, you know, from my own perspective on the health card piece and the housing. Um, and just in conclusion, Fallon, what is Cooper Institute hoping to see uh, from this legislation in the fall? You mentioned the health card, you mentioned the housing. Are there any other pieces you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Um, great question, Emma. Um, so this particular piece of legislation, I don't think that it, it's likely that those pieces will come into play underneath this this um, this legislation that hopefully will be um, tabled in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, however, just around that, um, you know, something that like a couple of of the recommendations that we have wanted or that we put forward specifically regarding because this does come under employment, right? So it really focuses on employment. Um, one of the things that we would love to see is a amendment regarding um, the prohibition of taking action against a worker for communicating with any c- community or advocacy organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we've seen a few times um, where workers are told that they're um, that there will be repercussions if they speak with community organizations, particularly advocacy organizations. Um, and I something we're really hoping to see because um, there is some um, provision within the human the PI Human Rights Act. Um, it does provide some protection. However, something that we often see is that it may not be the employer telling that to workers. It actually may be the recruiter. Um, and mm. so this something that's really great in this um, in in the act is that it will be regulating recruiters. It will be requiring requiring them to be licensed. Mm. Um, and so we're really hoping to see something like that put forward so that um, recruiters, that it, it will work in a, a deposit system on a deposit system. So when re- recruiters uh, register to, to receive their license, they must, um, they'll have to put down a deposit. And this is something that is like other provinces do this. It's, it's quite a done practice. And so depending on, on the amount, we're hoping that that amount is enough to deter workers from um, going against this act. And so something like that would be, would just make such a huge difference um, mm. so that workers would, when they're faced with that, which is clearly, it, it's just such a, a, it just makes me, it still makes me, it makes me really upset to think about that, to, to, to be able to be come to a new country and to be looking for help and to be told that actually, if you look for help, um, you'll have problems. And mm. so it would just be such a wonderful thing to be able to say, you know what, this is written into our law um, and to be able to have, I should say, to, to have a way to deter that officially mm-hmm. um, would be absolutely wonderful. And, and you know, there's, there's other, other pieces, but that was one of the biggest ones that stuck out for us. I would like to say that it's, I feel very, very privileged being in my position because I get to meet so many workers that have come here and are in, in tough 
situations and some are in great situations, some are, are not. And, um, but I think that I, if I could take away, if I, if I could leave people with one takeaway is that if you have ever doubted that, that there are many, many workers, migrant workers in Prince Edward Island, do not doubt it, they are here. Um, and they are in some cases um, being exploited um, as you can, and I, I hope folks will, if they're interested, can read the report that, that Cooper worked on. Um, my position is very precarious. I, PEI is a very small place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, throughout this interview, I, I tried very, how do I say it? I have, to, I have to be almost as vague as possible while giving specifics because I don't want to put any worker at risk. Um, and so that's mm, yep, the, the sure. biggest challenge is, is I, I don't want people to think that, oh, because she can't give specifics or tell specific stories that this isn't happening. Mm -hmm. do, not, do not doubt that it is happening. Um, but I think that being uh, as the only advocacy organization that supports specifically migrant workers in PEI, we have to be extremely careful, which is something we've seen again and again. So um, I just wanted to mention that as well. And, and hopefully, hopefully it was uh, still interesting for people, even if I couldn't go into any specific stories. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I was just reflecting on something that you were talking about earlier, which is the fact that there's repercussions for speaking to advocacy groups. And I think this might be one of the leading causes as to why we don't hear as much about the issues that migrant workers face, because if you are cutting them off from folks who could advocate for them and learn about their problems, if at the same time there's a power imbalance that exists between these workers and, you know, the employers, then at that point you end up in a completely segregated system where they don't have access to supports or any help that they might, you know, have otherwise obtained should have, should they have been allowed to share their issues. So thank you so much, Fallon, for joining us today and sharing so many interesting insights into what's going on um, on PEI right now. Um, and we'll be watching out for the legislation, hopefully this upcoming fall to protect temporary foreign workers. Now this concludes the formal segment of our interview. Um, and there's usually a very um, serious part of it, which we call our beer panel. Uh, now it's called a beer panel, but it's really taken on a life of its own in the last few episodes where we talk about anything, any recommendation you'd like to make for our listeners. We've had folks talking about restaurants, about recipes, about ice cream, about wine. So Fallon, as our special <laughs> guest, you get to go first. What would you like to recommend? Oh my gosh, this is so wide open. I, <laughs> I wasn't prepared. Um, Okay, I was at Hojo's the other evening. Yes, delicious. Mm. Of course, we all we all know. <laughs> um, but I actually had the Copper Bottom Rabble Rouser Red. Oh, wow! I just want to say, wow, that is a fantastic <laughs> beer. Um, and I unfortunately I'm going to be uh, moving to St. John here in in a few weeks, but I'm thinking I may. Um, may take a couple of those with me because they were delicious really if anyone if anyone's a fan of of reds highly recommend it mm. Mm -hmm. and i think the oh the other place i want to recommend this may be a little be this may be a bit out in left field but um okay queen street on queen street actually close to where we saw each other the other day uh, um right across from shoppers drug mart 
Mm. There is a place called Heimart. Yeah. And yeah, Heimart, it's the best. Um, so myself as someone who lived in Mexico and who works with a lot of Mexican people here in PEI, uh, highly recommend stopping in and checking out some of the Mexican products they have there. Um, mm. They've got some really great Indian products as well, some foods and groceries, but there's actually a very large uh, Mexican section, Latin food section as well. So if you've ever wanted to try making mole or making chilaquiles or making some tacos de pastor, I highly <laughs> recommend stop in YouTube, whatever you need to do. That's why YouTube exists. Um, and there's a, there's a special channel I really like. Um, it's this Mexican grandmother from Michoacan, which is close to where I was. And it's called the Mi Rancho a Tu Cocina. It's from my ranch to your kitchen. She has great <laughs> tutorial videos on how to make the real stuff. And so you can check her out on YouTube, go to Heimart, get yourself some great Mexican food. So that's, mm. that's, that's my recommendations. Yeah, I, um, my first time at Heimart was actually a couple of weeks ago uh, today and it was with you, Fallon. And I remember <laughs> I went in there and not really knowing what it was. And then I found these cookies that I couldn't find anywhere else on PEI. <laughs> <laughs> that we used to have back home so mm -hmm. i walked out of there with a couple boxes of cookies and one for me and one for my sister and we really enjoyed that now i have to ask the youtube channel in question does it have english subtitles definitely not nope definitely not <laughs> 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 however it's very visual it's, okay okay she's you know she says tomatillos and she'll hold up the little baby tomatoes and you know it, it's pretty easy to follow i think i think you could you could handle it okay perfect yeah. so learning spanish through food that sounds like a good plan yeah it's the <laughs> best way best way to learn spanish perfect well i guess i'll go next um the beer i like to recommend is from upstreet and it's the go go goze which is um, a seasonal um that they're throwing out there for this upcoming summer. Um, it's really good, it's really light, it's very citrusy, which I like in beers. So that's my recommendation. No special story, just a good beer. Mm. Love yeah. it. I have a cat walking all over me here. I don't know if she wants to say hello. Do you want to say hello? Oh. <laughs> Can you folks hear that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is Luna. Congratulations, you're now on the internet. She already <laughs> is. Um, so I'm going to recommend the Village Green West Coast IPA. Now, Village Green is a newer brewery here on PEI, and they're based out of Cornwall. And a good friend of ours, uh, Tessa Rogers, who's similar to you, Fallon, a big uh, big beer enthusiast. <laughs> and anyways, she, like, raves about Village Green. She's like, you know, this is one of my favorite breweries, like, so good, like, this sort of thing. I was like, okay, cool. Like, and anyways, like, it's when you get a stamp of approval from a beer enthusiast it's like okay i at least have to try this so last night i was on the new patio at Hopyard, and i got the opportunity to try village green and let me just say the west coast ipa is delicious it is so good um it's just like super fresh nice to eat outside as well eat outside a uh, drink outside hopefully you're not eating your beer <laughs> um but yeah no it's it's really good i i really don't know what else to say it's just it's got a bit of a snap to it like it's it's very very fresh and yeah anyways 
big fan of Village Green and I'm hoping also to visit the brewery out in Cornwall as well. Um, and yeah, that would be my recommendation for folks today. Wonderful. I'll go with you to Village Green, Emma. Oh my goodness. Awesome. <laughs> we could do we could do a little trip. We'll do a okay. little trip. Sounds the good. The three of us will go. We'll have to bring Tessa as well, uh, as she is the, totally. the connoisseur and um, who gave us the recommendation. I shouldn't say have to. It would be a delight to. Tessa, if you're <laughs> listening, love you, buddy. Thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> we'll see you at Village Green. <laughs> well, this brings us to the end of our episode with plans for a road trip to a brewery. Thank you so much for joining us, Fallon. It was a treat to have you on and to chat with you as always. Thank you so much for having me. It was so good to catch up with you guys. Awesome. And that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you so much, Fallon, for speaking with us today. Your work is essential to PEI, and we are pleased to have been able to share it. Our opening closing music is always from the talented Shane Pendergast. You can catch Shane live at Harmony House on Friday, June 11th, 2021, and Saturday, June 12th, 2021, from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. We hope you're taking advantage of the good weather, maybe dipping your toes in the beach a bit, and staying warm, staying safe. This has been Dialogue. <laughs>